You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, the economy is reopening most places within the next week. We here in Oklahoma uh, are reopening many businesses starting on Friday, it seems, and many churches, including ours at Bridge Creek, will start to slowly reopen uh, our services to the public this upcoming Sunday and then the next Sunday and then maybe by the end of the month, depending on what happens, we will be sort of fully reopened without uh, restrictions. But uh, it seems like we are sort of kicking the reopening, at least in most states, not all, but in most states, we're kicking that into high gear within the next few days. Are you glad to see that happening? What 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 is that? Uh, what is that? How do you feel about all that? I want to be really passionate one way or another, but like I'm just I'm lukewarm at this point. Um, government interference and just trampling on my life is just the norm at this point. Uh, Tate Reeves, uh, the governor of Mississippi, uh, long may he reign, I guess. I don't know. That's going to really hack off some Mississippians. But um, he uh, has been kind of pushing back the reopen date gradually. Uh, just as things go on, not just capriciously or anything like that, but that's in part, I would think, due to him making stay-at-home orders comparatively late. So seeing the reopening and seeing really the reactions that people are having about it, it really reveals just where people are at and where their thinking is of, okay, these people are reopening and I think that's terrible or these people are reopening. I think that's great because I've seen two polarizing uh, tweets go out, both from Twitter verifieds. I don't remember their names. I would have to go find the tweets. I'm not going to do that because they're real galaxy brain takes. So they're not worth your time where one person called for boycotts of companies that were opening. And another guy just took the right opposite approach of calling for boycotting companies that stayed closed. So there's no winning. Like I mentioned, I think last week, uh, the only winning move is not to play. Uh, Sometimes life is just a lose situation and you just have to bear down and figure out how you can lose the least. So I'm more than happy to cautiously reopen and see how things go. If for nothing else, but to vindicate those people against like the crazies, like uh, a teacher that was recorded screaming at some kids playing basketball, just screaming at them, saying that I hope you die a slow and painful death of coronavirus, that sort of thing. And that's just nasty. So if nothing else, I love to watch people like that have to just shovel crow pie in their face. So I'm cautiously optimistic about different states reopening. Yeah, I uh, so I think that I have discovered exactly uh, where my line is with this whole reopening issue. Um, uh, as far as general guidelines are concerned, I am fine with the government sort of gradually reopening things out of this, given that things have already been closed, given that that was already the circumstance. I'm fine with the gradual reopening. We've got some businesses here in Oklahoma that are being allowed to reopen. Uh, a few are not most notably bars. Uh, 
I say most notably that, well, that might be the most notable thing that's staying closed uh, short term. Um, but bars aren't going to be allowed to reopen. Of course, sports aren't going to come back for a while. The uh, Major League Baseball is talking about playing the entire season in empty stadiums um, starting maybe in July. Uh, but I found my line. And I've, I've got a couple of illustrations uh, for the line. The first is, and I don't have the news article in front of me to cite this, um, but there is apparently an undercover sting operation in Texas to uh, to – I believe arrest hairstylists who were working mm-hmm. from their own homes. I know exactly homes. which one you're referring to. Yeah, that seems to go a little bit too far. Um, that, uh, you know, it, it's one thing if you want to close down the place of of business, um, but doing these things in your own home, um, I've got a got a huge problem with that. Uh, and I realize there may be some inconsistency between. Having a problem with uh, a sting operation through the through someone's home and not having a problem with the government uh, shutting down businesses short term or at least uh, not not having a problem with those guidelines being set in place. Um, but it, it feels if I may, go ahead. If I may, there's not an inconsistency. And the only kind of people that would argue that there's an inconsistency there are people who are having experimental surgeries to have their brains replaced with lead bricks. So just going to drop that one. Just let it rock. That sounds incredibly dangerous. Um, But the, there's a certain insidious nature, I think uh, to that sort of operation. And then the second one is a little closer to home. I've seen this, uh, I saw this posted specifically in Anadarko, Oklahoma, uh, and a few other places. I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing something similar. But with regard to churches, and this is where it's close to home, um, in Oklahoma, we're allowed to start reopening our congregations to the public uh, to more than just 10 people uh, starting on Sunday, which you know we're going to slowly roll that out. We're going to do it carefully. Some congregations in the state will go ahead and start on the third. Others will uh, wait a bit longer and and that's, that's fine, you know, to each their own. But, um, you know, the, they've made a couple of guidelines um, uh, with regard to that reopening. They still want people to socially distance. They, uh, they've, uh, I'm not sure if it's requested or ordered. I'm not exactly sure where the line is there um, where they said, look, we, you know, sit every other pew apart. Oh, oh, okay. Fine. Whatever. We get it. We still need to socially distance uh, in order to prevent the spread. Uh, But provided we're doing that, you know, there's there's no issue with congregating together. So be it. But some individual communities uh, have taken it upon themselves. uh, And and Anadarko is the one that sticks out because it's the one I, I remember clearest to basically go through a process of inspection and sanitation of the building. Uh, as administered by the city uh, before being allowed to resume services at the building. Um, and that that comes across as rather insidious, as well as the city becoming extremely restrictive in some cases in what congregations can and cannot do. Um, you know, it, it's something where that sort of insidious nature where 
there, I think there's a difference between, okay, these are the sort of best practices on the one hand that you need to practice when you're, um, when you're congregating together uh, as set out by the state and as set up out by the federal government. That's one thing. And on the other hand, it's, well, we're going to come in, we're going to ex- inspect your building, we're going to uh, verify that you are up to our standards before we allow you to congregate once again. Um, there's something very insidious to me about the second part of that uh, that I'm deeply uncomfortable with. Um, you know, and it's something that I don't think. I don't really know how to articulate what I'm feeling about it, but I, I think I found that line uh, between what I think is acceptable in this case and what I think is totally and completely unacceptable. Now, that specific requirement isn't being uh, enforced on us at Bridge Creek. We're not a part of a smaller community that that's enforcing those sorts of restrictions. But there are some congregations that are going to be deeply impacted by that, and it may uh, impact their ability to congregate together in a way that, in my opinion, I suppose, I, they really shouldn't be uh, forced uh, to change. Um, and so I, I don't know if you've seen – I know you mentioned you saw the, uh, the sting operation down in Texas, and there may be other stories like that. I don't know if you've seen anything specific with regard to congregations, but uh, I, I'm wondering if you've seen – uh, any anything particularly like that 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 sort of catches your attention? Uh, the closest point of comparison would be, if my memory serves, California is uh, putting the opening of churches and other religious establishments on the back burner compared to other uh, businesses and uh, groups and activities, that sort of thing. Uh, Michael Knowles talked about it today on uh, his uh, show at the Daily Wire. Uh, essentially, whereas schools and other places of large-scale public gathering are opening in weeks, not months, those are the governor of California's words, if my, my memory serves, uh, churches are opening in months, not weeks. And so there's that inconsistency that religious groups are being treated with that's what bothers me most because I look at that and I think, okay, for one, are other religious groups getting the same treatment? And for two, are other businesses, groups, however you want to term it, getting the same treatment? Because if not, there has to be a specific justification for doing so. There has to be a reason why this is being treated differently or this is being held to a different standard, uh, just out of a spirit of fairness. Because realistically, going with the California example, for instance, um, if you're allowing schools where in California, in some cases, you can have over a thousand people ranging from anywhere from like five to 50 years old, just to kind of have about uh, a average all coming together, same place, same time. I'm not understanding why churches are much more risky to open because they tend to have fewer people all together at the same time. 
they operate for fewer hours out of the day and fewer days out of the week. So that seems to be a specifically uh, onerous and burdensome thing. As for the Anadarko community, is that what you said? Did I hear that rightly? Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, that an axiom that I try to live by is not to attribute to malice what I can explain by the person just not being very bright or just not thinking about something. So I don't want to immediately assume malice unless I have specific evidence. And, and that applies in California, too. Like if the governor of California were later to come out and say, you know, I didn't really think that through. There's no real reason to have these restrictions on churches if I'm not going to do this elsewhere. That's my mistake. Okay, fine. I can look past that. I can look past a lot of things if a person acknowledges it, apologizes, and course corrects. So I'm curious to see how those inspections pan out and what exactly they're looking for. Uh, because on its face, I don't like that. And I, I would want to know what the standard is and even what the process for appealing or trying to course correct if you don't meet the standard. As for the sting in Dallas, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds because um, I have very controversial opinions about policing in general that I don't want to just drop on people all at the same time. But I hear police are doing stings of salons, and I think Texas shares a border that is plagued by drug traffickers, human traffickers, and other criminals. Not just of Central American or Hispanic descent, either. Like, just outright criminals of all stripes cross the Mexican-American border in Texas. And that's not a reflection on Mexico or any other country in and of itself. It's just a point of fact. And so I see that and I think... If you have the time, resources, and opportunity to set up a sting for a hair salon, then as a police department, I would expect you to be able to say, well, we've caught all the murderers and other high-level criminals in our city, so we've got nothing else we really can do. This is the most serious thing to approach. Given yeah. that I'm not a fool, I know that's not the case. That's just petty tyranny, and I'll leave it at that. Don't you know, though, that uh, the hairstylists who are doing undercover haircuts just want people to die? I mean, they don't. Like, I know you're being facetious, but like, that's just that's kind of the level of seriousness at which I take that response of what? No, they really don't. They don't want to die of hunger. Right? Yeah. No. Like, unless unless like. They're like lacing their scissors with heroin or something like yeah. that, and like getting people high by cutting their hair, which I don't know enough about drugs to know if that's even possible. Yeah, or haircuts. I, I don't. I don't, know I don't enough see about haircuts to know yeah. if that's possible. Um, I, I don't. I don't see it. Now, so the the Governor Newsom thing is interesting because this is someone that uh, President Trump has repeatedly praised uh, throughout this whole process. Like he's talked about the great relationship that he's had with California. Uh, and how things have gone well. And, um, you know, he, he's had, you know, sort of a back and forth with several other governors, including some more conservative governors like Governor Kemp in, in Georgia. But 
Governor Newsom in, in California, he said largely positive things about, and yet, you know, they have a very, very, uh, a very conservative timeline for reopening. And like you said, they've got some policies that if they don't directly target churches, uh, then they have the indirect effect of of targeting them. And and like like you said, I think the issue there has has to do largely with consistency. If you've got similar gatherings taking place just in a different sphere, a different sector, then you better have, like you said, that, that good reason for not reopening churches specifically. And I don't know what that would be. I I can't fathom what the difference is between one gathering uh, and another as it pertains to this virus. So it, it's it's frustrating uh, when you see policies single out churches when really the issue here is crowd size like banning all crowds of a particular size and under i understand that i i totally and i completely understand why you would want to ban certain crowd sizes uh, as it pertains to the virus what i cannot get behind is banning certain types of crowds uh, based off of this virus and that that's where it becomes incredibly incredibly frustrating um, so I don't know if you saw what the biggest news story that came out, I forget if it was Monday or yesterday, but it was what everyone was talking about yesterday is our vice president paid a trip to the Mayo Clinic. And the fact that this became the biggest news story of the day is a little sad. It's a little sad. But I think you know what I'm talking about. You might not. Did you see what happened when Vice President Pence visited the Mayo Clinic? I have seen bits and pieces. My The highlight reel that I've seen is Mike Pence, who is just a piece of white bread with a, a little bit of toast. Not even a bit of salt, if you're into that, or brown sugar, but just a buttered piece of white bread. Not even put in a toaster, but just a buttered piece of white bread, given human form. Showed up at the Mayo Clinic without a mask. Mm -hmm. And the Mayo Clinic's Twitter account originally claimed that he had been told beforehand, wear a mask when you show up. And then they deleted that tweet, which means either they lied about it, got caught, deleted it. They got browbeat into deleting it for whatever reason and or just some other nonsense, big galaxy brain conspiracy level thing. Uh, people are very upset at Mike Pence for not wearing a mask is what it boils down to. Yep. Well, and uh, to sort of finish off the story, the Mayo Clinic put out a statement after the fact uh, that I think, if I remember the statement correctly, said that they had informed Vice President Pence. Uh, about the uh, about their mask policy. Um, there's a, I, I'm of a couple of minds about this. The first is that uh, you know as much as the media has sort of trumped this up and made it bigger than it is, it is still a really awful look for the pr- vice president of the United States to be the only person walking around uh, in one of the most well-known facilities, medical facilities in the country without a mask on. That sure, uh, but that's counterpoint. Mm-hmm. If they cared so much about it, they could have given him a mask. Yeah, well, and, and you know, we we need to allow for the possibility that he just outright refused uh, to wear a mask. 
Um, sure, that's that's entirely possible. You know, and that there have been some who speculate that that came down from Trump. Uh, I don't think we've seen Trump in a mask yet. I'm not I'm not exactly sure of that, but he's not in a mask very often, even though uh, many of the reporters that surround him are. Um, and uh, Pence's defense was fairly flimsy, basically saying, yeah, I'm tested every day for this thing, but that doesn't hold up when you can, you know, go out when really you probably need to go minute to minute with that. Um, but still, I, I, even with all that, making that the biggest media story of the day is fairly problematic. Um, you know, there's I hate that term problematic. It's so meaningless now, but I, I can't get, I can't afford as a person to get into that. So I'm sorry for interrupting. No, you're fine. It, it's, it's something that, you know, the only reason this would be a real story, the only reason this is a story that matters is if we find out that Pence ended up having coronavirus while he was at the Mayo Clinic, and if we find out that if we can do contact tracing and put someone else having uh, coronavirus being diagnosed with it, we can trace that back to Pence going in there without a mask while being infected with the virus. Otherwise, it's a non-story, right? It's a thing that happened that caught the media's attention that they got upset about. It was a really bad look, to be sure. The optics of it are awful, but they're just optics unless something worse comes of it, right? This cannot be the extent of a story by itself. It really shouldn't be. And so that it led the news, like that it was the top story that people were talking about yesterday, uh, at least on a national level, is pretty indicative of where we're at media-wise. That it's something that, because the optics were so bad, it has to be the lead story rather than, you know, anything else that's happening in the world. And there's there are plenty of things going on right now that deserve our attention more than the vice president's uh, revealed face, if you will. Now, now, Chris, don't be ridiculous. There's nothing on the planet happening right now, whether it be in Delaware, whether it be in the southeastern part of the world, whether it be in the Pacific, whether it be in the UK. There's literally nothing that's happening anywhere in the world revolving around anyone else that's more important because orange man bad obviously um yeah i i don't i don't get it i just i mean i i know why i know why they do it but it's it's just really really flimsy um I, it, it's frustrating. Um, speaking of things going on else, elsewhere in the world, um, so is Kim Jong-un dead or, or not? Uh, he's Schrodinger's dictator right now, and <laughs> I feel really glad and proud of myself for coming up with that off the cuff. Not that it's really brilliant or they took a lot of effort, but just comedy king right here, baby. Uh, I don't know what happened to him or if anything's happened to him because uh, 
every country you could get 10 officials from 10 different countries and get like 12 different answers uh, as what's happened to him. Uh, Donald Trump dropped a hint a few days ago that he knew how Kim Jong-un was doing and was kind of vague about it. Kind of let the mask slip of saying like, oh, well, I hope I, I hope he's doing well or I hope he can he improves that sort of thing. Um uh, he was reported to be in a vegetative state uh, by uh, officials in Japan, if my memory serves. Then South Korea comes back and says, no, he's fine. It's just one of those we don't know because it's a secretive society. It's one that doesn't really like to tell people anything. And that's just kind of the nature of societies like that. And uh, what's more interesting to me as far as what can be known, is how many people are willing to... uh, There are terms that fall under internet slang that describe it accurately, but I don't want to use internet slang in a very serious TM podcast. But um, we'll say uh, fangirling. That's a good one. Fangirling over the sister, and at this point, presumed heir uh, to a person who leads a regime built on genocide and fear. And it's disgusting, quite frankly. Yeah, that's that's very problematic. <laughs> There's your word. Um, I'm here for you. But that, uh, that fangirling that's taking place... Um, it, it sort of masks maybe people who do it don't think it masks, but it really does mask, like you said, the the awful, awful uh, dynamic with which that regime is led. Um, but really, that's that's what North Korea is. It tries to mask everything that it practices. It wants to present itself as, you know, just this upright upstanding nation to the world uh while not feeding its own people um i i mentioned this last week i cannot imagine that i cannot possibly imagine a situation where north korea announces officially kim jong-un's death if he is dead um i cannot imagine a situation where they announce his death without having in place whatever the next power structure is going to be. Um, if he is in a vegetative state right now, uh, then they are probably scrambling to figure out exactly what that's going to look like. Um, but I cannot imagine, be it his sister, be it someone else in the family, I cannot imagine a situation where they move forward and announce his death or announce his current status without also accompanying accompanying that with um, who their next leader is going to be the the leader the supreme leader as they uh, as they call their dictator the supreme leader is the focal point of that government it is the focal point of that nation and so you cannot have a gap in power there for any length of time at least publicly and so I'm very curious to see uh, what ends up happening, either based on whether he's alive or not. Um, I tend to think that if he's not dead, that he is in a vegetative state, only because 
it's been long enough. Um, if this has been called into question, if he's perfectly well and healthy, then just, you know, send him out in public for five minutes. Right. Um, why, if he's perfectly well and healthy, why would you hide him for a week? I mean, you know, we're, you know, Trump's not exactly threatening to assassinate him or anything right now. So why, why hide him unless he is either, unless he either already has passed on or is in that vegetative state. And so we'll see what ends up happening over there. Um, whatever does happen, I hope it's for the better. Um, whoever does take the reins, I hope they steer them toward, uh, you know, more humanitarian efforts, uh, treating people better, um, you know, sort of getting that country going toward where it needs to go. But uh, I'm not optimistic if it does end up being someone in that regime, given all the atrocities that that family has committed. And, you know, I like you said, the fangirling over it, uh, the idolization of people uh, in that regime is frankly just disgusting. And so we'll we'll see what happens moving forward. But I'm not terrifically optimistic um, about what will happen. But I still acknowledge the possibility that if he has passed on it, there is as good of an opportunity for change over there uh, as there has been any time in the past I don't know, 40 years. Right. And that's, I am, my optimism is tempered by my very amateur grasp of North Korean history, uh, which by the way, any listener who is inclined, I would certainly encourage reading up about North Korea, learning as much as you can. I'm actually working through right now a, quote-unquote, unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il called Dear Reader, uh, written by a man with the pen and public persona name of Michael Malice. It's very fascinating. And uh, really, North Korea, the best analogy for North Korea that I have, like looking from the outside looking in, is it's like watching the mating rituals of rattlesnakes. Not because I'm a voyeur of that sort, but because it's like looking into a cave or hole and seeing something that is just so horrifying to behold and so morbid and just bizarre to the eye that you can't look away even though you know that it is eldritch. In its appearances, but more to actually to the point, you have to bear in mind when talking about North Korea, these are are, are resilient people, remarkably so. They're resourceful. Uh, since gas is so rare over there, they've learned to retrofit their cars to burn wood. Um, and as far as their leadership goes, they're depraved, totally. Uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, in response to a nationwide famine instead of appealing to countries for help, instead of trying to find ways to lift people out of poverty, he started a let's eat two meals a day campaign and pushed propaganda that indicated that a three meal a day pattern was basically a scheme of the Yanks and Japs, his words and descriptors, not mine, 
to keep North Korea fat and lazy. And as a result, 20 million people died. A regime willing to starve its own people to death, especially when its leader is um, healthy, we'll say. That's the nicest way. I, that's the nicest word I've got for Kim Jong-un. You're not dealing with people that want what is best for their country. They at best want what is best for their ideology. And when you read the propaganda that North Korea puts out in a digest form, as I'm doing right now, whether it's just kind of presented to you in overview, or whether you somehow go and get it yourself, because if you go to North Korea, you can get copies of their stuff. They translate it and they're happy to distribute it because they want people to have this stuff in their hands, or at least they did once upon a time. But they are totally given over to a very 20th century view of the Marxist revolution that was tweaked into totalitarianism. And their leadership isn't going to give that up unless they are forced to. Well, and that's what makes the fetishization of that family uh, so uh, disconcerting. Probably about 10 years ago, we saw something similar with uh, Fidel Castro uh, toward the end of his life, where you had some people, particularly in our generation, who, uh, who, you know, didn't view him as sort of an enemy of the state, didn't view him as sort of an enemy of his own people, um, but, you know, viewed him as, you know, just a different sort of political thinker. Uh, in fact, uh, one person, I won't name names, but one person uh, that uh, I was in school with at, at Freed actually met him at, at one point before he passed. And that's uh, that's something, you know, you, you look at that with regard to his leadership. And I would argue that what's happening in North Korea is leaps and bounds worse uh, than what's happening in in Cuba and what has happened through most of Cuba's history. There there's some pretty horrible things that have happened in in Cuba, uh, but the level of depravity in North Korea I think uh, far exceeds anything that's happened in Cuba. Um, but you saw him sort of fetishized toward the end of his life, um, and I wonder if we're seeing something similar with regard to the Kims in North Korea. Uh, obviously not on the part of, of most people, but you get a sort of vocal minority, even here stateside, who, because they don't grasp what has happened historically in North Korea, because they don't know uh, what has happened um, with regard to you know, the, the enforced famine, if you will, the enforced hunger, or even worse, uh, they are misguided or just otherwise flat wrong about why those things happen, which is even uh, more discomforting because they uh, don't have a proper understanding of what has gone on over there historically. They just view North Korea, like many have viewed Cuba, as a different regime with a different system of government, with different policies, uh, but you know they genuinely care about their people and that's what matters. Uh, when in reality, you know, you look back at historically at Cuba, you've got people who have tried and still try to escape 
Cuba by basically swimming to Florida. Um, you know, maybe holding on to a raft or a barrel or something, trying to defect uh, to the U.S. You know, you've got uh, you've got some of that happening from North Korea too. Although their propaganda machine is is fairly strong over there, and they're probably a little bit tighter with security over there as well. Um, it, it has become, uh, you've got me scared to say the word problematic now. Um, (laughs) it's something that I don't think people understand what they're doing, uh, when they talk about, you know, leaders like the Kims and the Castros in a positive light. Um, you know, it doesn't help that one of our leftmost leaning thought leaders in the country and, and Bernie Sanders is willing to praise uh, basically any communist regime that he can, um, although I don't think he has very much nice to say about North Korea, thankfully. Uh, but he's had plenty. Well, nice they're to totalitarian. Say. They broke yeah. off from communism with the advent of Kim Il-sung. Well, yeah. Um, at, yeah, I just... It, <laughs> It, I mean, it, I, that's pedantic, I grant, but that that would be what their response it's, would be. It's the principle of the thing, though, of praising regimes that have done, uh, you know, that have committed atrocities. And, you know, I, I don't think people understand um, how awful it is and the ramifications of praising um, these these depraved regimes. I didn't like it when when Trump praised uh, North Korea. Yeah, sure. when he had good things to say about uh, Kim Jong Un and 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 the nation, um, you know. But w- when you look at that situation, it's like, yeah, there there are there some qualities that are not negative about those people. Maybe are they redeemable qualities? No, at least not as it pertains to the regime. At least not as it pertains to uh, everything that's going on over there. You know, the, you know, one or two likable things about a depraved leader doesn't make him all of a sudden fit to lead. Well, now, Chris, to be fair, have you seen some of Hitler's art? Yeah, well, he had, there were they were nice paintings. Yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah, and with, and everyone that hears that and thinks Sam, you sound like a crazy person. Yeah, exactly. Yep, that's the point. But yeah. more beyond that, as in my very limited experience, there are two kinds of people that praise these regimes, especially the likes of Cuba or uh, Lenin's Russia, or even God help us, Stalin's Russia, and those sorts of people. And they fall into two categories generally. One is much more rare than the other. The first being the that-wasn't-real-communism crowd. And they're the people that that aren't just oblivious about communist ideology and have read some of it. They've read Marx, that sort of thing. But, one, they have no end of excuses for why all the horrible and atrocious things that these regimes do aren't actually representative of the ideology or aren't indicative of how the ideology works on paper. And they'll say things like, well, communism works in theory. Everything works in theory. That's why it's called theory. 
everything except democracy works in theory. Democracy doesn't even work in theory. That's a whole different story. But um, and so there are those people, and their great downfall, if they get what they want, will be that they don't realize that liberals get the bullet too. In a genuinely ideologically consistent Marxist society, liberals get the bullet. And, for instance, with Castro, the people that praise him, uh, Castro would have most of them killed. Again, assuming he's ideologically consistent. Same is true of Che Guevara. The same is true of Stalin. The same is true of Lenin. The same is true of Trotsky, Mao, and so on and so forth. Because communism is not a liberal ideology. It is diametrically opposed to liberalism in any form. And so... Like I said, liberals get the bullet. The other kind of person that praises those regimes, and these are the ones that you should definitely be afraid of, are what I'll call the, yeah, that was real communism, people. And they're the ones that are very knowledgeable about Marxist ideology and history and aren't ashamed of it. They embrace it. And they do so because they see the world through those lenses that allow them to say the acts of men like Stalin or Mao or Lenin or Trotsky or any number of other people are justified because they are fighting back against the oppressor, against the imperialist, against the capitalist, against the liberal, against any number of people. These are the kinds of people that if you say uh, the Tsar and his family were killed in the Bolshevik Revolution, including his daughter Anastasia, who was a child, they say, yeah, and she deserved it because she was a member of the privileged oppressor class. These are the same people who don't have a problem with Russian farmers being sent off to die in Siberia because their lives weren't as terrible as the farmers around them. And the first category of people is mostly just what Stalin would have called useful idiots. The, cat, the second category of, yes, that was real communism and I don't have a problem with it, people, those are the ones that worry me because while they're not nearly as numerous, I've met maybe one person who would come out and say, yeah, that was real communism and that's not a problem. And one, it takes a lot to get them to come out and say it. And two, they don't publicize themselves that much because they know that outside of their regimes, they sound like maniacs. And so you're not going to encounter people like that very often, if at all. And so all of that to say, most of the people that you or I know that praise these people, one, they would be killed by the regimes and they don't realize it. And two, they don't have a consistent framework in which to view them. And that's probably the saddest thing. Yeah. And, and sometimes that first group, uh, you'll see that language veiled as something like, Instead of that wasn't real communism, uh, you'll see it talked in terms of secular humanism when it comes to uh, uh, different atheists who debate. You know, we've never uh, that there's never been maybe if they're arguing for a communist society uh, sort of founded on a secular humanist worldview, they'll say, well, we've never had a system of government that's been based on secular humanism uh, when you point to different uh excuse me, different systems such as Stalinism, such as uh, such as Hitler's Germany, uh, such as Castro's Cuba, all these different things. Uh, and to be clear, not all of them were uh, were 
100% secular humanist, but some of them had humanism at their foundation. Uh, Mao China, for instance, um, would have been uh, would have been one of those. And and so you'll you'll see that idea sort of misrepresented to say, well, it's not really been tried. No, it really was tried, and it really did fail. Um, like you said, you you know you've got people who believe it works in theory without realizing that you know in theory like you said everything does work but um when it's been practiced and it's been tried a number of times in the past you know 120 years or so when it's been practiced when it's been tried it has failed uh it is either uh collapsed in on itself or it is either or it is collapsed into one person. It has been consolidated into uh, one person. Uh, communism can, you know, elevate one particular leader, as it's done in a number of these uh, a number of these regimes. And so, it's something that we'll see what ends up happening um, moving forward in North Korea. I am hopeful but i'm not terrifically optimistic about the nation uh changing um i i'm not exactly sure how china specifically would feel about uh north korea sort of going a different direction um given that north korea my understanding and again it's not terrifically well known but my understanding is north korea relies on china pretty heavily um, for a lot of different things. And so North Korea sort of breaking off in a different direction and engaging in the global market would not be ideal for China. And so there would probably be some resistance there. But we'll see. Uh, we we shall see what ends up happening with North Korea moving forward. I wanted to ask you about one more thing uh, before we uh, before we close for today. I uh, I asked you, uh, we're recording this on April 29th, um, on Wednesday, April 29th, and there's an article that came out from Fried Hardeman University's Vantage Points, which is sort of a uh, an opinion piece based uh, online publication. I'm not exactly sure how it how Vantage Points terms itself, but you know most of the articles are written by people who we know or at least have come into contact with uh, fairly often. It's professors at the university. Uh, some write agreeable things. Sometimes there are things that I don't necessarily disagree with. Um, there's very rarely been anything written in there that I can remember where I've just you know disagreed with it and how it was written and the basic premise and everything uh, going on in the article. It, it What I'm getting at is that the publication is probably worth your time, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything on it. But an article came out uh, by uh, Nathan Worf, who is I believe a professor on campus at Freed at this point. Um, Correct. He's a law and politics professor. Okay. So he wrote an article entitled Politics and COVID-19. And in the intro, he basically says um, that uh, uh, George Packer in the Atlantic beat him to the punch uh, with an article entitled We Are Living in a Failed State. And basically, uh, Worf goes through the article uh, through his article and basically points out all of the all of the underlying issues in the country uh, that this 
pandemic is revealing to us, is, is making manifest to us in a clear and unavoidable way. Um, he talks about things along socioeconomic lines. He talks about issues along racial lines. He talks about issues. Well, I, I guess leading with socioeconomic probably covers most of it. Uh, but he talks about all these different issues, all the different spheres of issues uh, that have gone on, um, most of which are issues, some of which I, I, I don't necessarily know are issues or just or maybe are just really talking points without actually being issues. Um, but he does it and he basically shines a light on these different issues in the hope that not that the government will come to our rescue and fix everything, but that Christians will be uh keenly aware of the issues that face their neighbors, even if we don't face them ourselves in our own personal lives. I, I think we've both had a chance to sort of briefly go over the article. I, I was curious if there's anything about it that stuck out to you, if there's anything that uh, that caught your attention, uh, for better or for worse, in the article. Right. The main thing is, um, while I've not just had extensive discourse with Dr. Worf, uh, he and I uh, just... From my uh, encounters with some of his uh, writing, again, very limited pool to draw from. And just from like his like speaking publicly in a recorded format, that sort of thing. Uh, there are some sharp ideological agreements between him and I. We're not polar opposites, of course, uh, because my polar opposite would probably be someone like Joseph Stalin. And I don't think many people qualify for that, Noma. Uh but uh, anyway, all that to say, uh, the main thing I notice is that he leans very heavily on what is commonly called a Pareto distribution. Uh, the idea, uh, for instance, uh, one of the most common examples of the Pareto distribution is 1% of the population holds 98% of the wealth. And those numbers vary differently, that sort of thing. But the point of what is called a Pareto distribution is to recognize that in a variety of contexts, statistical distribution is wildly skewed. The most obvious ones that get brought up are wealth inequality, mainly because that has political ends to it. But uh, even just for instance, it pans out in music, for instance. Um, the overwhelming majority of artists, like recording artists in the world, people who record music and perform music in some skilled capacity, aren't the people that are hitting the Billboard Top 100. And that's not a question of their talent, their skill, the quality of their work. It's just the reality of the matter. Um, another great example, still being in the music world, um, only a handful of classical composers still see a whole lot of uh, work produced. Uh, in another instance, uh, a handful of scholars dominate the popular uh, interaction with scholarly material in a field. Uh, for instance, just one example off the cuff, it's not right or wrong, but N.T. Wright is much more well-known to the broader public than probably most of his colleagues at St. Andrew's College, if my memory serves, he's still teaching at St. Andrew's. Not to be confused with New St. Andrew's, which is in the United States. But um, again, all of that to say, just 
it's fair and right to point out those distributions, but there's a sort of implicit message. I don't want to impugn motives to Dr. Worf because, well, I can't read his mind, and I don't just have extended correspondence with him. I don't have any correspondence with him, in fact. But um, typically, when these are brought up, Pareto distributions are brought up and the kind of in parentheses message is, and that's not fair or that's not right. And in and of itself, you're right. He's right. Or the person is right. Pareto distributions aren't fair. They're not supposed to be. They're not intended to be. And no one claims that they are. It even follows what is sometimes called the Matthew principle. To him who has, more will be given. And the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. And are more biblically inclined and attentive listeners can immediately pick up on where that's from. But all of that to say, pointing out distributions is fine, but to go off of the Atlantics, it's revealed what's broken in our society uh, uh, angle. That makes a lot of assumptions. And it also begs the question of, would it be better if your uh, priors were operant and followed? And I don't think that's the case. To borrow Jordan Petersonism, it's not at all obvious to me, for instance, that things would be better if the Pareto distribution of wealth were completely flattened. Because while it's fair to say that wealth inequality is drastic in the United States, it's also fair to say that there's a drastic difference between the quality of life that a poor person in the United States can experience as opposed to a, a poor person in, the language differs sometimes, but we'll say a majority world country uh, where standards of living are very low. And so when people write articles like we live in a failed state, that sort of thing, I kind of look at them and then say, OK, just come out and say that you think that these things are bad. And again, that's not an impugning of Dr. Worf's motives or his views or opinions or anything like that, because, again, I don't know them explicitly. I know some positions that he has taken or stated in the past, but that's not indicative of what he's going to say every time. So all of that waffling to say it's worth a read, but just be aware of priors going in. Yeah. I think in the article, there's a few things uh, that he points out that I can appreciate. Um, he acknowledges, I think about midway through the article, maybe not quite midway through the article. He acknowledges, he said, look, wealth inequality really isn't the problem uh, in and of itself. That's not the issue. The issue is what it means for people on the bottom. Uh, and I think him sort of drawing the implication that uh, or laying out the implication that wealth inequality is what happens on the bottom. And he points out a bunch of statistics uh, that I think people at this point, uh, maybe this is a big assumption on my part, but a lot of people are familiar with if perhaps because they experience it themselves, uh, American workers by and large live paycheck to paycheck, uh, about 30% have no emergency fund. Nearly half would say they would have an issue paying a $400 emergency. Um, you know, 
that college and healthcare far outpace inflation, um, and all of those things, uh, I think are problematic. Uh, to use your favorite word for, I think the fifth time this podcast, uh, that the fact that college and healthcare are being inflated—that's an exceptionally uh, difficult pill to swallow with regard to healthcare, especially. I don't think anybody is real thrilled about the uh, about the healthcare situation in this country right now, regardless of what your political leaning is. Uh, we all have different answers to fix the problem, but we all agree. I say we all agree. Most people agree that healthcare is a problem in the country for one reason or another. And that's, I think, the issue is that when we talk about these things, you know, pointing out uh, that there are these issues, uh, both with the distribution and what it actually means for those uh, at the bottom end of it, pointing out those issues um, is not the same thing uh, as as saying, well, here's what's causing the issue. Uh, and, you know, talking about that in light of wealth inequality does not necessarily mean that the inequality in and of itself is what is, uh, you know, to put it in, in terms some of our mo- more woke friends would use, is not what is oppressing those uh, in the bottom part of that distribution. Um, you know, there are some things that I like about the article. Uh, I, I can appreciate the fact that you know, one of the things he points out is uh, the the nation's reliance on employee sponsored health care uh, has uh, has revealed itself to be an issue um, when all of a sudden you don't have employment. <clears throat> um, and I'm not necessarily saying that we need to go to a state run system. I'm not sure that I would be in favor of that at all. But if there's not an easy way for me to get health care when I lose my job, um, I say I proverbially here, uh, I don't have health care through my employer, um, as many preachers have to go and search individually for health care. Kelsey is able to have hers through her employer, though, so there's still some application there. Um, But if there's not an easy way for me to go get health care through – you know, when I lose my job, especially in the midst of a virus, that that's, you know, that that is something that probably should be addressed. Again, we just disagree on how. But like you said, by and large, you know, when when we talk about um, poor in this country, there are sort of two levels to it. Uh, there's poor in an objective sense, people uh, who are severely destitute, um, uh, people who are uh, severely in need, and then there's poor just relative to the rest of the country. Uh, you know, where relative to the rest of the country, you know, a person might be in the bottom, I don't know, 30%, might be living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, of course, you know, your income level does not determine whether or not you live paycheck to paycheck. There's not a direct correlation there. But, um, might be relatively well off compared to the rest of the world, like you said. Um, and so, and to be clear, because I know sometimes people take an observation like that the wrong way. That is not to say that being poor in a, what used to be called a first world country, uh, isn't a terrible thing. It is. I don't wish poverty on anyone, even if the poverty line is like 30,000, 
for some, in some cases. I don't wish poverty of any sort on anyone. And recognizing that poverty in the U.S. is not as excuse me not as bad as poverty elsewhere is not an endorsement of poverty. So I'm going right. to head that sort of uh, uh, moral outrage off at the pass. Right. You know, it's it's simply an acknowledgement that when we talk about the term poor, it is it at least in the sense that we generally use it, it is relative. Um, you know, and that. Uh, you know, you, you'll see people like Ben Shapiro, you'll hear people like him and others talk about, you know, the some of the poorest people in this country have it better uh, than some of the richest people did 100 years ago. Well, not exactly sure that that's true. It's true, perhaps, in a technology sta- uh, sense, um, but I, I don't know that I would sort of go that extreme with it. Uh, just in general, well, I mean, there there are ways I can see that being true. Uh, yeah, there there like the are ones very... that come to mind for me are specifically running water, like consistent yeah. indoor plumbing and electricity. Yeah, there are but there are okay. yeah there that, are that doesn't mean that you are living a good comfortable life. Like, there are specific spheres where it's better. Uh, there are specific aspects where it's much better for everyone. Uh, but that that doesn't. You know, it, it doesn't I, I would probably caution against a blanket statement like that, uh, you know. And so w- probably the thing I appreciate most about the article, though, is, you know, he, he doesn't come at it from a he, the government needs to fix all of these things perspective. Uh, perhaps he wishes that it would. I Like you said, I'm not going to impute motive either, uh, but he that's not the angle of the article. The angle of the article is, you know, if you're a Christian and you're reading this, you need you need to be aware of, you know, your neighbor's struggles, um, you know, and for all of the implications the article might present about uh, wealth inequality causing poverty, uh, if you will, or at least being directly tied to it in some capacity, uh, the the thrust of the article really is, you know. How are we as the church, how are we as Christians going to respond to these issues? Because the re- the reality in this pandemic is pretty plain. We've got, you know, 20 percent of the country is unemployed. That's one of the statistics that's come up. We've had uh, we've had north of 20 million people file for unemployment uh, in the past, uh, what, six weeks or so. Um, you know, the the rollout of the payment protection program has been an absolute disaster. We talked about that last week. There are companies that didn't get on the gravy train quick, quick enough, and now there's no gravy left for them. Um, and so, and dead people are getting checks in the mail. Baby. Dead people are getting checks in the mail. Um, yeah, I have something about that in just a minute. Uh, but when, when it comes to when it comes to your situation, with the understanding that me as an individual Christian, I as an individual Christian, am not going to be able to help in the millions and millions of dollars. Um, I need to be at least aware of the struggles uh, that uh, that many around me are suffering. And even if I disagree with uh, with uh, Worf about the struggles themselves, or about rather where they came from, why they happened, why they exist. Uh, that doesn't change the fact uh, that there are people surrounding me who are struggling. Um, and I don't get to simply 
sit on my hands and say, uh, you know, well, that's their problem. They need to deal with it. Um, I that's you know, that's not something that I get to do and call myself Christ like, um, you know, that I don't get to walk uh, by my struggling neighbor on the other side of the street, as it were. Um, and that's something that, you know, depending on who you are, you're, you might be struggling listening to this, or you might be in a position to help, uh, just, you know, being aware that these are real problems, even if you don't see them in your day-to-day life. And even if we disagree about where the, where some of the problems come from, you know, the reality is there's a lot of people facing problems right now. Um, and, you know, he, he, you know, probably the thing I appreciate most about the article is that he, he backs it up with statistic after statistic after statistic. He's not just relying on anecdotal evidence. In fact, I think the only anecdotal thing he relies on at any point is uh, a few quotes from uh, Dr. King, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, letters from a Birmingham jail. And, and it's something that uh, being aware of those problems is step one in helping to be a part of the solution to those problems, even if uh, we disagree on where that solution is going to go, uh, what that solution is going to look like. I don't get to bury my head in the sand and plead ignorance to all of the problems uh, experienced by those around me. Right, and that's really going to be the that ends up being what the crux of it is and what always ends up being the problem is how do we do this uh, or how do we respond to this and uh, controversial opinion i'm very much against government involvement in fact i'm of the opinion that most of the problems that work notes are in some way or another caused by government involvement, especially the rising cost of college. That's a whole nother rant I could go on. Um, and different people have different proposals, as, and some have differing levels of government involvement. But uh, for me, and in my very limited experience, there are going to be a contingency of people who can't distinguish between, I don't think it's the government's place to step into these problems and I don't want these problems to be solved or the flip side being true as well of, I think that there is a place for government in this being not being fairly distinguished from, I think there is no place for individual action in this. And so that, that always ends up being the, the crux upon which those conflicts uh, hinge and to go much deeper than that would take this out of a uh, general uh, look at politics and culture from a Christian perspective thing to uh, to a Christian's introduction to Ancapistan and we're not ready for that yet I'll just put it that way so um, it, it's something that I think we would do well to be keenly aware of um, and I think most people understand it uh, at least that I've seen on social media that, look, people are struggling right now. People that never expected to struggle like this in their lives are struggling right now. Um, and if you have the opportunity to help out someone in need surrounding you, take advantage of it. 
um, you know, it, depending on where you're at in your situation, you might be able to help financially. You might be able to help with your time. You might be able to help uh, with different support. I, you know, whatever that looks like, understand that there are people struggling uh, that that really don't know what the end of May, for example, is going to look like, uh, let alone uh, what perhaps their business is going to look like, what uh, what their retirement's going to look like, what, what their long-term outlook is going to look like. Uh, I wanted to bring up one more story uh, to close on here. Um, you made me think of it with regard to dead people. It's not quite the same thing, uh, but there's a story that came out of Kentucky yesterday that, that made me nearly fall out of my chair when I heard it. Um, so... As you can imagine, with regard to these expanded unemployment benefits, there's been a lot of fraud committed on the part of different individuals trying to get uh, unemployment businesses, submitting fake names, uh, you know, dead people, that sort of thing, like you mentioned. Um, and someone apparently uh, submitted an unemployment claim uh, in the state of Kentucky under the name Tupac Shakur, you know, famous uh, rapper who died, a rapper and hip-hop artist who died, uh, I think about 24 years ago now, um, <clears throat> has been He didn't dead. just die, he was murdered, but... Right, well, yeah, uh, although you could get tinfoil hat about that and, and suggest that he's not dead, that he faked his own, well, you know, he, he was murdered um, 24 years ago. Uh, and Governor Bashir came out in a press conference and got angry, as he is wont to do. Um, and he mentioned specifically Tupac Shakur filing, uh, for, uh, for, uh, unemployment benefits. Uh, he called out the person for quote, using someone else's identity. And that person probably felt they were being funny. They probably did, except for the fact that because of them, we've got to go through so many other claims. That's not okay. Can't be doing that. One day later, he had to apologize because a man by the name of Tupac Malik Shakur came out later that evening and said, yeah, um, I filed unemployment benefits because I don't know how I was going to get through the end of the month. Uh, I filed for those benefits and I'm pretty hurt and embarrassed by all this that I would be called out by the governor for go no good reason. Uh, and so... Governor Bashir had to uh, come out publicly and apologize to Tupac uh, for calling him out for filing for unemployment benefits while he was struggling. That that is just wow! Like that just that invigorates me. Like I feel more alive than I have in. Ever in my entire life. <laughs> because just, what are the odds? Like, ne like, never mind actually crunching the numbers. I don't want to hear it. That's boring. But just imagine the universe just aligning such that all of human, like, good grief. That is incredible. And what's even more incredible now is I'm trying to imagine the doctors and surgeons working to remove the governor of Kentucky's whole entire leg from his mouth there, from where he had to shove his foot that far down. Like, how? Well, and it, uh, 
it's one of those things where if he had just ruminated on the problem, um, you know, just gotten up there and talked about the issue without calling people out, it would have probably accomplished the same purpose that he intended by going up there and calling people out. But when you call people out, you run the risk of being wrong. Um, as a general rule, unless you're a thousand percent sure and unless you a thousand percent want to embarrass a particular person, don't call people out when you're public speaking. It's not hard, right? Um, you go into, I mean, we both preach. If you get into a pulpit and you call p- someone out from the pulpit, and they don't know you were going to do it before you call them out. Like, even if it's a positive thing, uh, you might be drawing attention to someone who doesn't want attention, let alone a negative thing where you don't have all the information. Yeah, this is one of those, uh, if you're going to shoot at the devil, you better not miss. Like, that's that's a good axiom to apply in life. You better be sure he's the devil. (laughs) Right? What if he's just an innocent person? Who happens to be named Satan for some reason, unrelated to being actually Satan. To to be clear, Deep in the Tank does not endorse the idea that Tupac is Satan. No, not at all. But just, like, for one, just, gosh, just what are the odds? And for two, what are the odds that that person was listening at the time, just like I just keep coming back to the to the idea that like wow, just truly the providence of God is a beautiful thing that he shapes history like water in his hands from a stream to give us something like that like that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's just beautiful. Uh, a light in a place of darkness. So, all right. Well, that's uh, that's about all I've got. Um, we good to go ahead and wrap it up? I mean, unless you just want to talk about Joe Biden, but we've been going for nearly an hour and a half, and Joe Biden deserves at least 30 minutes, so I don't know if we want to do that. He, he's probably going to get more of our attention next week. I kind of want to wait and see how that story develops a little bit more. Beautiful. That just gives everyone something to look forward to. So, All right. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and wrap us up then. Uh, thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time.